Good evening, everyone, and thank you all for being here today. Um, we are excited about a wonderful language access program. I am Sharice Perry. I am the Director of Court Services and Law Libraries for the Massachusetts Trial Court, and I am also the co-chair of the Delivery of Legal Services for the Boston Bar Association, along with my um, partner in justice, Liz Matos, who's the Executive Director of Prisoners Legal Services. We'd like to welcome you here today. We will be speaking of all things language access, and I am joined by an esteemed panelist of uh, Chief Justice Ron Keough from the Boston Municipal Court, uh, Regional Administrative Justice Judge Lynn Rooney um, in the District Court, the Director of Language Access, Sybil Martin, the Senior Manager of Language Access, Nada Berrios, um, my other justice warrior, Iris Coloma Gaines, um, staff attorney at Massachusetts Law Reform Institute, and Caitlin Parton, general counsel for the Massachusetts Commission for the Deaf and Hard and Hearing, um, and supporting the Office of Language Access is Emily um, Ricola. So thank you all for being here, and we are going to get started. Um, I am introducing Chief Justice Robert Ronquillo, who serves as the chief of the Massachusetts Trial Court Language Access Committee to welcome us to this program and talk about the importance of language access. And I will continue to introduce many of the presenters that we have here this evening. Thank you all. Thank you, Therese, and thank you everybody for being here. Uh, this is an honor and privilege to be here. And I, I was looking earlier at the topic of this webinar and it's very appropriate title, Navigating the Mass Court System, because that's really what this is about, is unless you don't, unless you don't, how to navigate it with the lost. And I am pleased uh, that we have the experts in essence in the field here uh, from different perspectives. Uh, in the trial court, it is very important that the court users understand exactly. So we're only as good as the people that, we're only as good as the court users understand what we do and what is said. Other than that, we're a system of a foreign language or people who cannot hear, means of not saying that. So it is critical to the trial court that every person who comes into our courtrooms are treated and are given every opportunity and the access to understand and to hear everything that is happening in our courtrooms. As a result, we have the language access plan. Um, there's a long-term plan on how to continue to most of this. Um, you know, uh, there, there, there are ongoing meetings on signage, on increasing interpreters, uh, the language. Uh, you will hear then from the Office of Language Access the numbers and the, and the extent of the language that we hear. Uh, I am pleased also to really hear both from the how to navigate this system, I'll use that word again, I'll talk to you, both from the lawyer's perspective, if you have a client who's hard of hearing there or doesn't speak English, what, what do you do? If you have a witness, how do you handle that uh, from the lawyer's perspective? How do you get to interpret it? What if it's a, a language that is not very common? Um, from the interpreter's point of view, you know, what do they need to be able to be efficient and effective uh, in the court, so that we make sure that everybody uh, is on the same level playing field when it comes to the court proceedings. And then from the judge, and we can speak from, her, from the judge's perspective about what is so important and why language access is so important and how 
to work with interpreters. Um, and I think, yeah, I do want to thank everybody for being here because I think this is truly um, an extension to teleporting with the teleporting, which is justice for everybody, access to everybody in reports. I do want to thank you for that. And I want to express that uh, that language access uh, to limited language, limited English proficiency in the regionals and they put out here is critical and uh, one of our highest priorities in making sure that those individuals um, have access to our courts and they to walk out with a complete understanding uh, of what happens to them. So thank you, Rob. Thank you, Chief Justice Ron Keo. Um, and thank you for being here this evening. I am now going to introduce uh, Dr. Sybil Martin, who is the director of the Office of Language Access to begin our portion of the language access discussion around um, how to provide services as a court interpreter. Thank you. Good evening, everyone, and thank you to the Boston Bar Association for sponsoring this webinar. And also thank you to Director Sharice Perry, co-chair of the Delivery of Legal Services Committee for partnering with our office tonight. Next, please. I'm joined this evening by Senior Manager Narda Berrios. Last fiscal year, the trial court provided interpretation and translation services to 160,000 cases in over 100 languages, ranging from the top languages that include Spanish, Portuguese, Haitian Creole, Cape Verdean, Vietnamese, and so on, and also including languages such as Swahili, Polish, Nepali, Amharic, Greek, Korean, Bengali, and Laotian. As counsel and um, as representing our uh, LEP court users, you can notify the courts of interpreter requests in five ways. First and foremost, by e-filing. Um, when the mass court's account holder at each local court receives an e-file back, that includes an interpreter request in the language needed, they immediately enter that request into mass courts. Also by US mail and by telephone, you can call the local courts. Um, we can put into the uh, chat feature how you can contact our local courts, but you can always call and request an interpreter. Also on the day of the event, while it's not ideal, it does occur that on the day of the event, you can go to any local court clerk's counter and also request an interpreter. And if there are emergencies that occur and you are in a live hearing and there is a need for your client for an interpreter, again, you can reach out to the Office of Language Access. The court clerk's offices are responsible for entering every interpreter request into mass courts, which is the trial court's case management system. Through these mass courts entries, the Office of Language Access is then responsible for pre-scheduling, which means in advance of 48 hours of a case being heard or on the actual emergency, the day of the event that occurs, we are responsible for ensuring that interpreter is provided to the court. 
Currently, we have over 200 interpreters and growing serving our courts statewide. And here is a complete list of about 70 languages uh, that we currently have on our roster serving the courts. Uh, we will provide this uh, list to all of you that are attending tonight. And if you do not see a language listed, that does not mean that we cannot provide the service. Uh, we definitely can through the National Center for State Courts and our networking. Our office also co-schedules with the Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing in providing American Sign Language and CART providers for the deaf and hard of hearing court users. Now I'd like to turn the presentation over to Manager Narda Berrios. Thank you. Thank you, Sibyl, and good afternoon, everyone. What I'm gonna talk about is um, working effectively with court interpreters. Um, interpreters for the Office of Language Access in the Massachusetts Trial Court are guided by the standards and procedures that were promulgated on January 20th of 2021 by our former Chief Justice Paula Carey. The Code of Professional Conduct for Interpreters is a guideline for working effectively with court interpreter. If any of you is interested in accessing that code, you can find that in mass.gov. Um, all the court interpreters must be impartial and follow code of professional conduct that ensures due process. An LEP, which is a limited English proficient individual court users and friends and attorney interpreters are not bilingual in the individuals that may serve as interpreter. We put emphasis on this because the work of a court interpreter is a work that is of a skilled and trained individual that even though someone may speak a language, that doesn't necessarily qualify them as an interpreter. Section 4.07 of the scope of practice states, um, exception eight, that interpreters do not fill out forms. That is because interpreters are only to provide site translation or interpretation services when someone is reading the forms. As attorneys, I think it's important to know the reason why interpreters may address you and tell you that they cannot fill out a form. And that is because the Code of Professional Conduct does not allow them to do that. Interpreters don't complete written statements. Um, in the event that there is a written statement from one in, in one language that the interpreters need to translate, the interpreter will do a translation when ordered by the court. Um, interpreters do not explain services and interpreters do not explain forms. As attorneys, in, usually attorneys have the impression that interpreters will explain a form when they are not able to communicate with a client. What attorneys can do in those serving LEPs is tell the interpreter the explanation and interpreters will do so but interpreters are not tasked and cannot explain any purposes in any form and any laws that is not explained for the interpreter to do translations. Interpreters also do not recommend attorneys. So for an interpreter to work in the court um, and be impartial, don't, do not ask an interpreter to provide any type of feedback on attorney, on services of attorney, or recommendations of attorney because the Code of Professional Conduct and Scope of Practice does not allow interpreters to do so. What is a court interpreter? An interpreter is a communicator facilitator. 
And that's basically what an interpreter is. Next slide. <clears throat> Interpreters are able to interpret in the three modes of interpretation. That is simultaneous, consecutive, and site translation. Interpreters are shown to render complete and accurate interpretation. Any utterances in source and tar target languages are really perfect matches. So interpreters don't interpret word for word, but meaning and context. A code interpreter is a communicator facilitator for the parties involved in a proceeding. And that will be for the district attorney, for defense counsel, for victims, for witnesses, and anyone involved in a court proceeding. An interpreter plays a vital role in the protection of the rights of the non-English speaker engaged as parties or witnesses in a court proceedings. The fulfillment of this role requires an understanding by the interpreter of the complexities of the perform and the fundamental ethics principles and standards to be followed pursuant to General Law Chapter 221C and Mass General Law Chapter 221C Section 92A of the Massachusetts Professional Conduct. Rendering interpretation. In any mode of interpretation, an online interpreter assigned for a case must complete and accurately interpret without adding, admitting, or deleting any statements. The source and target language often have different syntax, grammars, and slang idioms or cultural bound expressions that do not translate easily. I will say that because many that speak another language will hear an interpreter interpret context and we'll assume that the interpreter is not interpreting exactly what's being said. And that is because exactly what's being said cannot be transported to another language with the accurate meaning in many times. So interpreters transport context and not exactly the exact word for word interpretation. Often verbatim words cannot have translations that equivalent to the English language. This is why the interpreters are skilled individuals that can transpose the context of what's being said without omitting what is being said. Interpreters must apply their skills and judgment to preserve the meaning of what is communicated. This is the reason why not everyone that speaks another language can perform the work of an interpreter because in doing so, in word for word, the interpreter will lose meaning, context, and not represent the interest of the LEP who is the person in which and for which we're providing services to. Next slide. Working effectively with code interpreters. Speak clearly at a reasonable pace and volume. Interpreters cannot interpret what they cannot hear. Speak directly to the limited English proficient core user. They have the right to be heard. Everything that's being said and be addressed personally. Interpreters is only the conduit of what is being said. So do not address the interpreter as to address the LEP. Communicate person to person with a person that you are assisting in court. A limited English core user, family, friends, or bilingual personnel are not interpreters. And they are not skilled, nor have been screened, or know the code of professional conduct. Therefore, they cannot be impartial and also not know the nuances that an interpreter uses to transport meanings. An interpreter is there to interpret and not to take part in conversations. 
nor clarified or provide expert testimonies. Use only certified or screen interpreters by the Office of Language Access, because only those interpreters have been trained to work for the Massachusetts Trial Court. In using someone who has not gone through the proper training, you will put at a disadvantage the core user and does not service them in the proper way. An interpreter may agree to site translate on the record only if it's, if it's feasible to do so. What does that mean? What that means is that on the day of the hearing, you cannot provide an interpreter five pages of a statement to translate without having given the interpreter the opportunity to familiarize themselves with the language, the context, and what's being said. Interpreters can cite translate short statements, and if they need to translate something that's longer than that, the interpreter must be notified way ahead of time so that they can prepare themselves. Generally, documents of one pages or less can be side translated. Otherwise, the interpreter will have difficulty rendering the right and the proper meaning of the document, citing and researching words that are unfamiliar, and looking for terminologies that will make the side translation of the document more efficient. Audio recording or text messages must be submitted before time. Interpreters cannot be given text messages to translate as many emojis and other acronyms cannot mean the same thing for every person, every culture, and every individual. So these are not things that can be provided to interpreters to on the fly interpreting core without preparation. The service will not be complete and the interpreter will not be able to do a proper site translation to provide proper services. Translations, what is translation and what does the Office of Language Access does with translation and the translation team? The translator's role is to faithfully render a text from the source language into the target language. Translators strive for a functional equivalence in meaning, which is most different than interpreting, while preserving the source text register from intention and function. So reading the target language text pre-produces as closely as possible the experience of reading the source language text. So translating forms is not the same as interpreting. Not every interpreter can be a translator and not every translator can be an interpreter. What is the role of the translation and what can and cannot a translator do? The translators does not provide translations of core forms, documents, and web text in the requested languages. Translators match sources, text appearance format, register, and tenor. Translations are not identical to the English, rather achieve a functional equivalency. The translator provides the bubble notices. What is that? That is the notice that indicates in different languages for users who do not speak English. Monolingual translations serve as references only. The translators does not provide translations of individual cases, documents, for example, Gary Matlighton's reports, affidavits, and forms like that, that pretend only to an individual's case. The translators does not provide translations, translations approval for external entities that are in trial court partners. That is, 
The translation team and any of its members cannot authenticate a translation that has been done from someone outside of the trial court official translation team. This is an example of the bubble notice, which has been done by a translation team. And it has been posted for all core users to be able to access. Translation of affidavits. In, in the sources of restraining notice, interpreters do not take affidavits from LEP users. An LEP must write in their own language what they want the court to know in their affidavits, and an interpreter will translate what the LEP wrote. This is because an interpreter cannot take a dictation and dictation from an LEP into the English language because they will not capture the exact meaning of what the core user is trying to indicate the core. So in core, when an LEP comes to core to file for a restraining order or any other affidavits that will be in front of the judge, if the LEP does not read or write, an interpreter will write in the language of the LEP core user the exact meaning of what that person wants the court to know. Once that has been done in their language, the interpreter will read it in their language to the LEP core user. The LEP core user will attest and confirm that that's exactly what they mean to tell the judge. Once that is done, the LEP will do a translation from that language into English so that the judge in court can know what the LEP is trying to communicate to the court. This is the proper procedure. An interpreter that does not do this has violated the code of professional conduct. And this is the way that we can preserve the purity and what the LEP is trying to communicate with the court. If you have any questions at the end of the session, we're here to answer any questions for you. I hope that this is informative. My information is there. So if you ever have any questions regarding interpreters use and how to work best with the interpreter, feel free to contact me at any time. Thank you. Thank you, Sybil Martin, Narada Berrios, and Emily Ricola for your presentation from the trial court. Department of Language Access. I am now going to turn it over to Regional Administrative Justice Lynn Rooney from the District Court. I am just going to share a screen with you all. Okay. All right, can everyone see my screen? Yes. Okay, great. So I'm just going to, um, I'm going to echo a lot of what um, Narder just said, but I just want to talk a little bit about what I have seen um, as a judge. I worked for nine years um, as the first justice up in Lawrence, so I had the opportunity to see a lot of interpreters. We needed interpreters on probably 80% of our cases. Um, so I'm going to share a little bit about some of the things that are most bothersome um, to the court that we see. If I can get it to go, that would be good. And now it's not going. There we go. These are just very basic things, but you would probably be surprised at the number of times it happens. You need to know if your client or a witness that you're going to call needs the services of an interpreter. I can't tell you the number of times where I have been engaged talking with 
counsel about a particular case, we may be, you know, five, 10 minutes into something. And all of a sudden the attorney turns and says, you know what, my client needs an interpreter. To be honest, I don't know how that happens. I, I It troubles me because that sort of suggests to the court that the communication that has been happening between the client and the attorney was not really happening. Um, so I think it's got to be one of the first things any attorney um, does is talk with the person, make sure that English is their first language. If it isn't their first language, language, find out what is, and then talk to them about how comfortable they are without using an interpreter. I understand that many people have a, um, there's so many different levels of comfort with the English language, but when you're in the courtroom, there's a lot of words that um, are difficult, people may not understand. So just because someone might be able to go to a restaurant and order in English, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be comfortable in a courtroom without the benefit of having an interpreter. And certainly, um, if they're tendering a plea, you need to make sure they understand all of their rights. So I do expect, and I frankly get somewhat annoyed if when if that happens, um, and I have started basically asking right at the beginning, you know, does your client require the services of the interpreter? And I just want to attorney should be able to answer that question. That should not be a question where the attorney has to turn to their client to find out at that moment in time whether or not they need an interpreter. Um, this seems pretty obvious, but please don't use Google Translate or use another bilingual person in place of a court-certified interpreter. Again, I've seen it happen far too many times. I've seen people hand in a tender of plea. And when there's clearly some confusion um, with the person and I sort of turn to the attorney to try to figure out what's going on, um, I've been told, well, I did Google Translate to review the green, the tender of plea. It, it's just please don't do it. Um, when you do have a tender of plea, I know it's difficult. I know we are um, many courts are short-staffed with interpreters, and I know they're doing a lot to get more on board, but it's really critically important that you take the time to sit down with a court-certified interpreter and review a tender of plea with your client before it gets called in court. Um, it, it becomes very evident very quickly if someone has not taken the time to do that. Again, we're asking pretty technical, legal type questions. And if someone hasn't taken the time to review it when there's not a lot of pressure, because there's a lot of pressure in a courtroom, it, it's going to be evident. We're going to step it back. You're going to be there a lot longer um, than you intended to be. Um, so make an effort. And if for some reason you end up in a courtroom and you're ready for disposition and you haven't had that opportunity, please just tell the court. And we'll give you a second call and give you that opportunity. Uh, you need to be mindful of the purpose of the interpreter. Far too many attorneys tend to wait to meet with their client until they're at the courthouse. And they expect that the interpreter will be able to facilitate that meeting. Again, if you're in a, a courthouse and the interpreters are busy, their primary purpose is to be in the courtroom to help people who are actually before the court. They are not going to have the opportunity or the ability, even if they are more than willing to do it, they just don't have the ability to go sit in a room with you and basically conduct a client meeting. 
I fully understand sometimes it's very difficult to get in touch with clients. They don't return phone calls. They don't show up to meetings. And the only time you actually get to see them is when you're in the courthouse. Feel free to bring that attention to the attention of a judge. I have on many occasions explained to someone with the interpreter that it's imperative that they keep a meeting with their attorney because they'll order an interpreter and they have time to talk about it. Um, it's really, it, it's a critical piece. And I know, um, I know it's hard. I know it's probably even more difficult when people are in custody, but it really is imperative that you have those meetings outside of the court business hours. Um, I know Narder talked about this, um, but it, it happens. You know, you all of a sudden you have these documents and you're expecting the interpreter to be able to interpret it on the fly. Um, that's not fair to them. Uh, it's not fair to your client. It's really not fair to anybody. Um, so if you know in advance, and you often will know in advance, get that done beforehand. And there are ways to do that. Obviously, sometimes things pop up. It's unexpected. It gets um, brought to your attention. Ask the judge. Ask the interpreter. Is there a possibility that the interpreter might have a half an hour to sit and do this? Maybe it's not a very busy day. Maybe they could. Um, but don't just sort of put it on the interpreter and say, I need you to do this and expect them to be able to do it and then provide it um, to you for use in the courtroom. Um, again, echoing again, don't ask or expect the interpreter to explain legal terms. Um, we all talk in legalese. We get accustomed to it, a quaff. Um, if you're talking to your client about a quaff, the interpreter will probably say, a quaff. And what does that mean? So you need to be very clear and, and think about using very simple, basic language to make sure that what you're trying to get across actually gets across. Um, I've seen this happen in the courtroom. Um, sometimes in an, a person who is being interpreted for might get a little feisty and they might get, you know, maybe be a little bit rude. The interpreter is trying to provide us with as much um, accurate information from that um, client when they're interpreting. So don't mistake the interpretation for the personal feelings of the interpreter. They are merely doing their job, trying to reflect the tone um, of the person speaking. Uh, I've seen sometimes attorneys kind of go after the interpreter and it's completely inappropriate. Um, part of the reason I think it happens is because the interpreters do such a great job. It's so fluid and it's just kind of happening. I think you kind of lose track that they are just interpreting. They're not actually saying the words and the words aren't coming from them. These are things that um, I, I believe attorneys can do, all court staff actually can do to help interpreters. This is my own personal pet peeve. Um, you're in a pretty big courtroom, the interpreter is standing before the court, he or she is interpreting, and there's a group of attorneys sitting in the chairs and they're chatting, quietly, but they're chatting. That is really difficult for an interpreter. I, first of all, I don't know how they are able to do what they do. I am always in awe of what they do. So imagine when you're trying to listen to speech in real time, you're interpreting it for someone, and then you've got this other chatter that's going on behind your head. Um, 
it's easy when you're in court, you think, oh, it's not my case. I don't have to pay attention. I can, you know, do other things. Yes, you can, but do it quietly. Don't talk. If you need to have a conversation and the interpreter is working in the courtroom, step outside the courtroom. Um, just be polite. You know, is the interpreter ready? I think sometimes we forget, especially if you're in a building, um, for instance, Lawrence, multi-court departments, you know, interpreters would go from one court department to another court department, never mind from courtroom to courtroom. And you just, you know, you've been waiting for the interpreter show up. All of a sudden you expect them to jump right in. They may not have had a moment to um, use the restroom, get a glass of water. Um, I think just, are you ready? Do you need a moment? Are you all set before we begin? Um, sometimes lawyers, when making an argument, get a little bit, you know, zealous and they might start to interrupt one another or talk over one another. Very difficult for an interpreter. They can't sort of, they can't interpret conflicting or overlapping speech. So you need to take your turn um, and you need to be patient and let people finish what they're saying, let the interpreter you know, at a regular pace so that they can keep up with you and it's not confusing. So slow down, be clear with your speech. Um, when you first start using interpreters, it may feel a little bit awkward by looking directly at the non-English um, speaker and the interpreter is actually the one speaking to you, but you'll get used to it pretty quickly. But it's really important because you really are talking directly to the LEP. You're not talking to the interpreter. On occasion, you might have to like say something to the interpreter, Madam Interpreter, you know, can you hear? Like that's a different thing. But when they're actually in process of interpreting, make sure you're talking directly to the LEP and not using or say, Madam Interpreter, can you tell or can you ask? That's not how you use an interpreter. Um, the other thing for attorneys, and I think we lose this a lot, pay attention to the nonverbal responses of people. Um, the interpreter is not going to interpret a nonverbal response, but the attorney should. So the attorney should, first of all, say, you know, can the record reflect that the witness just raised their hand or something like that? And if they are nodding their heads or shaking their heads, Usually the court will intercede and make sure that it's there's a verbal response. But sometimes, you know, we fall asleep at the switch a little bit. So it's a response. It's important for the attorneys to make sure that everything's on the record. So if you're using an interpreter and you're seeing that the um, person is nodding, just say, you know, you need to answer in words so it can be recorded on the record. And. Um, this, this is, I think, one of the harder things that happens a lot. Um, many people who come into the court um, have some English ability, but it probably isn't enough in these circumstances in a courtroom. But inevitably, what will happen is they'll begin to use the interpreter, and then they start to respond in English to some questions, and they'll turn to the interpreter for some help, and it can get pretty messy, and it makes it very difficult for the interpreter. Um, so what I would, what I, I had this happen pretty recently, um, figure out, you know, if they need an interpreter, just explain to the individual that we're asking them to use, you know, use Spanish and not revert to English because it makes it difficult for the interpreter to kind of do it piecemeal. 
um, when it, if it keeps happening, keeps happening, I think you need to figure out, you know, is this person really more comfortable in English? Is this not going to work for the interpreter? You need to be clear. You need to make sure the attorney has had an opportunity to talk to the client about how that all figures out. Um, and the second part comes up a fair amount too. Oftentimes, um, a person will have not used the services of an interpreter for many court dates, but then they get to an evidentiary hearing or even maybe a jury trial, and they suddenly want the services of an interpreter. You might not have one because one may not have been ordered for it, and the case might have to get continued. What I would strongly urge you not to do is to say, oh, it's okay, we'll just go without an interpreter. Um, for my purposes, once someone raises a concern about the ability to understand and communicate in English, I want to make sure, I want to be 100% certain that they can do that or they get an interpreter. And if I have to continue a case, even if it's an old case, even if it's a custody case, it's not worth going forward if you don't have an interpreter, if the person needs an interpreter. Um because then what will happen is they maybe want the case really to go and then they find out there's not going to be an interpreter and then they'll say, oh, no, it's fine. We'll waive it. We don't really need it. He'll be fine. That doesn't really work for me because it was raised for a, an issue. And so you need to address it. Um, you know, our our sort of push to resolve cases cannot come at the expense of someone not understanding what is going on in the courtroom. They have that right. And it's our job to make sure that they um, are able to understand and hear everything that happens. And I think that is all I have. And I am happy to answer any questions at the end as well. Thank you, Judge Rooney. I am now going to turn it over to uh, Iris Coloma. Gaines from the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute to speak to us from an attorney and advocate's perspective. Thank you, Sharice. Um, is everyone able, able to see my screen? Okay, great. So um, there might be some overlap in my presentation also um, of what has been said already by um, the previous presenters, um, but I will um, try not to repeat. Um, so I wanna start out by saying that language access is access to justice. Uh, you need to remember as the attorney that the limited English proficient person and the deaf and hard of hearing person are relying on you as their attorney to work efficiently with the court interpreter to ensure that they have access to their day in court. Um, and, and as um, I mentioned before, um, a person, I think it's important for attorneys at the time of intake to ask the question on their intake form, um, what is your preferred language? Um, because that way, you know at the get-go whether the person um, needs an interpreter or not, because if their preferred language is something other than English, then an interpreter is likely going to be needed. And remember, as Judge Rooney pointed out, um, you might be able to speak to this client in English to set up an appointment in your office, to talk about the time and place you're gonna meet them in court and where it is. But when it comes to something really high stakes, like a court proceeding affecting their rights, 
they're really going to need an interpreter. So um, I feel like the easiest way to do that is to get it right when you're um, evaluating the case for, um, for representation. Um, so as Nadva mentioned in her, her presentation, there are three different modes of interpretation. I'm just going to go in and um, give you uh, a definition of those. So the first being um, that the, um, oops, sorry about that. Uh, simultaneous is the mode that's mostly used where um, the limited English proficient person is not being addressed specifically, but wants to and can listen to the proceedings in their preferred languages. Um, so usually headphones are used or the interpreter should be sitting right next to the LEP person in court so that, that the LEP person can actually uh, follow along in the proceeding. Consecutively is usually used in the question and answer interpretation um, when the LEP person is actually being addressed. So the interpreter should be close to the witness but not blocking the judge or jury's view of the witness. Um, and the interpreter will interpret the English questions and target language answers for the tribunal. Um, but there should be no side conversations at all with the interpreter. And then site translation is what Judge uh, Rooney was explaining where a document in the courtroom, and Nadva mentioned this too, um, that uh, requires an oral translation um, again, if it's too long, then you need to ask the court for permission. Um, uh, the, the interpreter will actually interject and, uh, and, and let the court know that they need time to go over this document, or if it's short enough, they can go ahead and um, translate uh, orally translate it out loud. Um, so when you're representing um, or, or when you're dealing with interpreters in court, you really want to familiarize yourself with the code of professional conduct that um, Nadva mentioned. I put a link here to it. It's part of the standards and procedures of um, OLA. Um, and understand that their role is solely to communicate, as has been said before, um, and that the interpreter has to translate every interpret everything that's been said, whether you intended to say it or not. You really can't request for the interpreter to not translate something um, or to add something to something that that you know you didn't say to begin with. And the interpreter also has um, a duty of confidentiality, um, so that's important to let the limited English proficient person know. Now, when the LEP person is your client. Um, some things that you should do before the court proceeding is um, meet with the interpreter, if at all possible, and ensure that the client and the interpreter understand each other. Ask the client to repeat back what she understood of what the interpreter said to them. Um, in other words, um, you know, you are going to say things to the um, LEP person through the interpreter and then ask the client to um not just repeat back, but what did she or he understand from what was uh, just um, spoken. Um, also ensure that the client understands the interpreter's role, that the client should not be speaking with the interpreter. Sometimes because the interpreter speaks the client's language, the client may feel some comfort level with that person um, in order uh, to speak their own language, but really there should be no conversations between the interpreter and the client. All the questions need to be directed um, that that client has to his or her attorney. Um, and sometimes a role play or a short practice run with this um, would really be helpful just to, um, so that the client really understands, you know, how the how the uh, roles are, are, um, are defined. 
Um, you really want to ensure the client doesn't have a conflict of interest with the interpreter. So, you know, ask your client through the interpreter, like, um, do you know this person? Do you feel comfortable with them interpreting in this case? Um, because many times, especially in sort of low, lower incidence languages, there might be um, an issue with an interpreter knowing like the litigant from um, the LEP person from um, the community, especially in situations like domestic violence cases or divorce, any kind of family law case, um, the LEP person might feel uncomfortable with this person being involved in the case, e even as an interpreter. Um, and also you wanna provide the interpreter with any legal terminology that you have just so that they have that information ahead of time. Um, so interpreters in court proceedings for a trial, um, there you might need a team of interpreters to one more depending on the length of the proceeding. That's something that Ola would arrange and know to do um, uh, depending on the length of the proceeding. Um, also interpreters need periodic breaks as has been mentioned before. They, um, you know, the job of an interpreter is really mentally exhausting. Um, it's really hard work. And so um, the interpreter has the right to um, ask the court for permission to recess, to familiarize themselves with terminology, to ask for breaks um, or for other accommodation. Um, and the interpreters also have a responsibility um, to report any conflicts of interest that they have with the LEP person or an inability to communicate or to report any error to the judge and to Ola, whether it be at the actual proceeding or later if it's something that they discover later. So these is just some do's and don'ts. Um, I won't repeat the ones that have been said, but um, avoiding idioms like it's raining cats and dogs or on the day of the accident it was raining cats and dogs. That's just like not gonna work for an interpreter. So try to avoid those. Don't use compound sentences. Try to use as plain and simple language as possible. Um, use the first and second person. So when, um, like it has been said before by the, presenters, you know, to speak directly to the interpreter, to the uh, litigant, the LEP person. You don't want to say to the interpreter, um, ask him, you know, what time it was when he arrived at, you know, wherever. It's you speak directly to the person and the interpreter is just literally the, the mouthpiece, the conduit. Um, no side conversations. And then you want to wait, as Judge Rooney pointed out, people should be speaking one at a time in the courtroom, um, no matter who they are, whether they're the party, uh, the judge, uh, the witness, um, the, the clerk, whoever it is, all should be speaking one at a time. Um, and you wanna pay attention, like Judge Rooney mentioned, to ex the exchange between the interpreter and the LEP person, because um, there might be, um, errors that you want to raise um, through an objection with the court and the court will make a determination as to whether the error you point out is prejudicial that requires correction, but it's important. Um, some of the things that you may find um, in your observation is if the, um, the LEP person is going on and on in their own language and then um, the interpreters respond, the interpreter's interpretation is just two words. Um, Things like that, like like, um, and also just noticing um, the you know if if the LEP person is their responses are not making sense to the question that you asked in English or the question that an attorney asked in English, then those are all flags, uh, red flags that you should um, you know point out to the court um, that there might be a, 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 an error and that um, 
you probably would have a sidebar about it with the court and the interpreter and, and the parties. So, um, and just be patient. Anytime an interpreter is used for a court proceeding or anything, it's gonna take twice as long or if not longer. And recognize that as an attorney, you may feel vulnerable and not in control and a bit like an outsider in the situation, which is not a normal feeling that we as attorneys have because we usually are sort of um, in control and have and can speak authoritatively in court. And you know, when there's an interpreter involved, you really need to step back and respect their role and um, understand the fact that you are actually providing um, access to justice for this LEP person. And it's important that you remember that. And then um, uh, exactly what I just said, the access to justice point. And then, um, and also be aware of cultural considerations. These, this is really important um, because the, um, oops, sorry. Um, the interpreter needs to be aware of an LEP person's re region of origin and dialect to really to provide complete and accurate trend, uh, interpretation. The education level of the LEP person matters. So like um, persons in the courtroom addressing the LEP person may need to further simplify questions based on the person's educational level um, attained. And then the person's LA, the LEP person's perception of authority based on their cultural background might really affect how or she responds to the questions based on fear of retribution for opposing parties or a domestic violence situation. So questions, just be mindful as an advocate that the same rules apply in the type of case that you are um, uh, presenting to the court that um, you need to take all that into consideration and um, so that the, the interpreter can also convey that in their interpretation. And then to file a complaint against an interpreter, um, OLA does have this form um, at monmass.gov. I've provided a link here. Um, OLA does take um, complaints about any um, interpreter. Um, again, if you familiarize with the, the standards of conduct, you can see if any of those um, standards have been breached in any way. Um, but some of the things can be, you know, uh, late arrival um, that affected like, you know, everybody that was there because it was a very late arrival or it can be um, other things like um, a conflict of interest uh, that wasn't reported to the judge or to Ola and your client expressed that, you know, that there definitely was a conflict. The competence of the interpreter, any unprofessional conduct, all of those things are grounds for filing a complaint. And that's all my presentation and I will also be here for questions. Thank you. Thank you, Iris. Um, and so lastly, I am going to turn it over to Caitlin Parton, who um, comes to us from the Massachusetts Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing to um, provide our final presentation for this evening. Okay, thank you. I'm going to copy everyone and make sure you can see my screen. Yes. I guess it's the current cultural equivalent of, can you hear me now? So uh, thank you for being here tonight. I'm general counsel for the Massachusetts Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, and I will be focusing this evening on how to work with deaf and hard of hearing clients uh, in the court system. So first, just a quick overview of what the Massachusetts Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing is. We are state agency uh, within the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. Our Executive Director 
um, or commissioner rather is Dr. Satanwa, who is himself an attorney. And the services that we offer are case management and social services for adults and children who are deaf and hard of hearing. Our communication access services department, which is where you would go to schedule interpreters, uh, CART, which is captioning and other language accommodations. We offer substance use disorder services that are bilingual and bicultural to deaf and hard of hearing individuals. And we also have our communication access training and technology services department, which provides information and referral, technical and communication access assistance, home and workplace evaluations and publications. So uh, deaf and hard of hearing people make up about one in every five um, people in the United States um, with a hearing loss. There are over 1.4 million deaf and hard of hearing people in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And much like other forms of disability, hearing loss can affect a person at any point over the course of their life, um, from birth to elder and can happen at any point in time. The U.S. Census does not count the number of deaf people who use American Sign Language to communicate. The WAF estimate is approximately 675,000. Um, typically, uh, when someone says that they are deaf, I think culturally, the image is that um, it would be someone who uses American Sign Language, but the vast majority of people with hearing loss use spoken language to communicate. Uh, ASL is a pretty common language requested in the court system. And in Massachusetts, only the Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing can provide the legally certified ASL interpreters. So we uh, work with OLA, as was discussed earlier. And we receive many ASL requests, and we are doing a lot to try to expand um, our ability to meet all of the requests that are coming in. Just very briefly, I wanna make sure that everyone who is attending tonight is aware that you are obligated to provide communication access to a person with a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. That includes the courts, that includes private attorneys and includes legal services as well. Um, and to briefly mention, the American Bar Association Formal Opinion 500 um, makes it clear how important language access is in the client-lawyer relationship. So regardless of uh, whether the person is deaf or hard of hearing or uses a language other than English, it is vital uh, in provision of legal services and attorney-client advocacy to provide an interpreter or a translator. So the Americans with Disabilities Act requires provision of effective communication access. And the best way to find out what is effective for an individual is to ask and then to do what is possible to meet those needs. And uh, deafness is a spectrum, hearing loss is a spectrum. So it can really depend on the individual's preferences, perhaps one-on-one -on -one in a quiet room. They may feel comfortable meeting with you without an interpreter, but in a courtroom setting, um, which is much more formal and there's multiple speakers and um, 
there's heightened need to be able to follow the proceedings without necessarily interrupting and asking for repetition, that individual may require accommodation. So you really need to work with your client to figure out what is going to be best for them, depending on uh, where you are providing the representation. And you should also be aware that communication access is not always for the person your work may be centered around. So for example, sometimes a minor child is hearing, meaning they don't have the hearing loss, but the child's legal guardians or deaf are part of hearing, and there's an obligation to provide communication access for the legal guardians to make informed decisions. So as I mentioned earlier, Deafness and hearing loss is a broad spectrum. Um, it's not just individuals who use American Sign Language to communicate. You shouldn't assume when you meet someone with a hearing loss that they know ASL. Um, in reality, uh, there's people who are deaf and oral, which I uh, consider myself to be part of that community. I'm deaf and I use cochlear implants to hear and I use spoken language to communicate but I can also use American Sign Language to communicate. You may not necessarily have known any of that information just from looking at me. So it's really important to engage in a direct conversation with the individual. Person can be uh, deafblind and have other sensory disabilities that could impact their ability to communicate as well. So like I said, there is no one size fits all. Um, you really need to ask the individual what they mean when they say they are deaf and they need communication access. Does that mean they need captioning? Does that mean they need someone who ensures that the meeting room is quiet and there's no background noise? Does that mean that they will be using captioning in some form for telephone communication? Does that mean that they need an ASL interpreter? Does it mean they need signed exact English, which is following the grammatical structure of the English language because American Sign Language has a different grammatical structure than uh, spoken English. So there's a lot of nuance here to take apart. So for individuals who are deaf and use ASL as their primary language, um, we call this culturally deaf, capital D deaf. Uh, most consider themselves to be a minority social and cultural group with the shared language of ASL. They have their own customs and community. ASL is not a system of visually coding spoken English or other languages. As I mentioned, it has its own grammatical structure and there is no written form. For individuals who use ASL as their primary language, English is a secondary language and fluency will vary. However, not everyone who is deaf knows ASL. You should also be aware there are regional dialects for ASL, uh, just like in spoken English. Uh, there's also dialects associated with marginalized communities. And you should be aware that ASL is not a universal language. Deaf individuals from other countries come to the United States and have to learn ASL as an additional language and may need additional interpreting services. And I'll talk more about that in a bit. You really need to ensure that you are not relying on 
handing over a piece of paper or writing notes back and forth with your clients um, if they are deaf and use ASL to communicate as your primary way of providing information to them. Uh, like I said, there is no written form of ASL. So uh, someone who uses ASL as their primary language, English is their second language. So um, this problem is amplified by the complexity of language used in a legal environment. So deaf individuals have historically had less access to equivalent educational and incidental information than hearing people going over legal documents with a deaf client, like your representation agreement or the complaint or preparing for a deposition. It's really imperative that you use an ASL interpreter to provide effective communication, um, especially as you're going through uh, very legal language intense uh, work. Is this going to take more time? Absolutely. So you need to budget in that time. Some common challenges to be aware of. Unfortunately, deaf people are often turned away from legal services or private attorneys just from lack of um, education, knowledge um, of resources and ability to provide for interpreters. Uh, you know, solo practitioners or private attorneys may not be aware that the ADA applies to them or that there are resources um, available if they um, need to work with a deaf client. It doesn't mean that necessarily every meeting that you have with a deaf client, you have to bring in an interpreter. I will talk about other ways that you will be able to um, meet with your client and um, there's telephone communication, et cetera, um, that the deaf person has access to that you would be able to use as well. Um, deaf individuals should never be billed for the provision of ASL interpreters or accommodations. And as was mentioned by my colleagues earlier, you absolutely should not show up to court expecting to use a court-appointed legal interpreter um, that the court has arranged to provide interpretation for the proceedings for your own communication with the client. For optimal effective communication, there should be a proceedings interpreter team that the court is responsible for scheduling and providing and then what I'll call a table interpreter who is hired by the attorney to ensure effective attorney-client communication um, with the person who uses ASL. So ASL interpreters um, are the resource that you would use for a deaf individual who uses ASL as their primary form of communication. In a legal setting, where the accuracy of information will have legal consequences, a certified legal ASL interpreter must be provided. These interpreters have additional training and certification in legal vocabulary and structure. For a deaf individual who is not fluent in ASL, may have other disabilities that impact their ability to understand language, or is perhaps an individual from another country who ASL is not their first language either. Um, a legally certified deaf interpreter must be provided in addition to a legal ASL interpreter. I'll explain what a CDI is in a bit more time. When you're using an ASL interpreter and there's multiple deaf individuals as plaintiffs, defendants, or witness, each party should be provided with a legal ASL interpreter to avoid ethical issues. 
And this further impacts the ability of deaf individuals to have their cases heard in a timely manner. Unfortunately, postponements can happen because there's a lack of ASL interpreter availability, and there's a whole host of due process issues. So a certified deaf interpreter, um, I touched on some of the situations where you may uh, also need to bring one in, in addition to the ASL interpreter. So not all deaf people are fluent in ASL. They're from another country, or there's other uh, issues that impact their ability to really receive language. Um, a CDI is a deaf native ASL signer. So they are a deaf person. Um, in addition to the ASL interpreter who is a hearing person. The CDI is an expert in visual gestural communication. They can relay information provided in ASL from the ASL interpreter to the person who is not fluent in ASL or who may need the structure of ASL to be broken down even further with particular words or concepts expanded. Uh, so, for example, maybe you're working with a deaf individual from another country and they use the sign language of their home country. The CDI has been specifically trained in how to pick up the native sign language that that deaf individual is using, find a way to translate that, expand those terms and bring in the ASL and break it down. Um, it's a really um, fascinating and incredibly important ability uh, and tool to use uh, in providing effective communication to deaf individuals. So there's also the option of having a remote ASL interpreter. You know, thanks to the pandemic, so much of our life is um, the internet. So there's also uh, interpreters available that can be present for a Zoom meeting or uh, some other form of video call who would be able to interpret remotely. Um, and on occasion, you know, back when court was holding all proceedings on the internet, uh, we have been able to provide uh, interpreters for remote proceedings as well. So there's a shortage of ASL interpreters in Massachusetts. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And um, the pandemic has definitely impacted that. So MCDHH is doing everything we can to increase the number of interpreters available. We have a very robust workforce development program, and we are working hard with the executive office of the trial court to really expand the numbers of court-certified uh, ASL interpreters available. Um, there's also video remote interpreting that I mentioned before, um, but optimally, especially if you're appearing in court in person, you should expect to use an ASL interpreter in person. And there are certain situations where a video remote interpreter is just not appropriate. Um, you know, they are people who are interpreting from another state. There can be regional differences. Uh, you can't ensure necessarily um, if you're not working with uh, the courts and with MCDHH, whether they're legally certified. So uh, just be very, very careful about that. If you're working with a deaf individual, uh, you may be wondering, how do I have a phone call with them? 
Uh, it's actually very simple and very easy. And technology has really grown in leaps and bounds. You know, you may be familiar with the really old school technology of a TTY, and I don't have that. Well, don't worry, you don't need to have one. Um, so what a deaf individual will use is called Video Relay Service, VRS. And um, it's completely free and it's uh, overseen by the FCC. You should be aware that these services are not to be used for on-site legal proceedings. They're just for telephone communication only. But that means that all of the run-of-the-mill uh, conversations that you would have with any of your other clients, um, you know, an intake interview, um, follow-up questions, going over, um, you know, facts, uh, making sure they're available and scheduling uh, proceedings and meetings. All of that you can do on the phone with a deaf individual, just like you would with any other client. So this graphic on the bottom of the slide shows that there's a deaf individual who is using a TV or a computer with video capability, and they're signing to an interpreter who's on the screen. The interpreter is going to be speaking by phone to the hearing user, I'm going to assume it's the lawyer in this situation. And then you, the attorney, get to talking to the phone just like you would to any other client. And the interpreter will interpret back into ASL what you're saying to your client. And again, this is completely free for anyone to use um, as long as, you know, it's really for a deaf individual and your deaf client is able to just pick up the phone and call you and vice versa. So this is just a slide to show the difference between video remote interpreting, which is someone on the screen who would be interpreting perhaps a meeting that's happening in person and video relay services, which is more along the lines of a telephone call that I just explained. Deafblind, just to touch quickly on uh, the needs of those who are deafblind and communication. Um, they also have a spectrum of need. Some use tactile communication, which means they would use an ASL interpreter who's specifically trained to sign into their hand. Others use braille and some use tactile brailers that provide live railing uh, translation. There are ASL interpreters who specialize in deafblind interpretation. Some deafblind individuals um, communicate verbally and may use CART, uh, which is captioning. So here's a picture of a telebrailer and a picture of tactile communication. Those who are hard of hearing um, have hearing loss that happens after birth. Um, they can do generally well, but may need more assistance depending on the situation. They may or may not use hearing aids or a cochlear implant or use assistive listening devices. Here's a graphic of just what different kinds of hearing aids look like. Hearing aids are tools. Um, persons who use them absolutely will not hear things perfectly. So often they will need a, additional reasonable accommodations to ensure full language access. There are assistive listening systems and devices um, that are available to those who uh, use hearing aids. And I won't go into detail about that, but you should just be aware they exist. Those who are late deafened uh, may use hearing aids or cochlear implants. 
in the form of uh, accommodation that they'll most likely use is CART, which is Communication Access Real-Time Translation. And CART is not the same thing as court reporting. Uh, CART or captioning provides verbatim instantaneous transliteration of what is being said for the benefit of the deaf or hard of hearing person who is using it. It can be provided remotely. It's being provided remotely this evening and I'm using it. You're free to click the link to see how it's working yourself if you're curious. Uh, CART output should not be used as a replacement for a transcript because CART is supposed to be for communication access only. And it's not verified for accuracy in the same way that a court reporter's uh, work would be for a deposition. Cochlear implants are, I call them a high-tech hearing aid. They're a bit more advanced, but again, it does not uh, replace the natural ability to hear. And so you are likely to have additional accommodations needed. So courts are required to provide accommodations to deaf and hard of hearing users. And um, my colleagues touched on all of this earlier, so I'm going to slip, skip past this. I just want to reiterate again, making sure that there is an interpreter for counsel, so an interpreter that the attorney has already arranged before coming to court that's going to be there specifically to provide attorney client communication access. And then the court separately has arranged for proceedings interpreters. To the extent possible, proceedings interpreters should not be borrowed to interpret for the attorney and the deaf client in addition to court proceedings. Communication access will get more complicated. Um, if both parties are deaf and use ASL to communicate, you may need to also have a CDI. It's really important to let the court know and in turn MCDHH know as far in advance as possible that your client needs this kind of communication access because there is just such a need for the service right now and not enough people available. So we need to really schedule uh, these services as far in advance as possible. So here are some links um, for how to request ASL interpreters and card providers from MCDHH. We have other information available on our website. For more information on assistive technology and general communication access, trainings for um, your office or anything like that, Jonathan O'Dell in our CATS department is really wonderful and you're free to reach out to him as well. And you can also reach out to me if you have any questions. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, so I just want to say thank you to all of the panelists um, for all of the knowledge that you have shared with our participants. Um, we have a few minutes before the program ends. If anyone would like to ask any questions, um, if you want, you can certainly ask questions in the Q&A section. Uh, can also follow up with any of the panelists. This is being recorded. Um, and with the permission of the panelists, we can also make the PowerPoint presentations available to you all to share with your community. So um, if you have any questions, you can drop them.
we don't get any questions. That means our panelists did such an exceptional job. They gave you all the information that you need. I don't think we have any questions. Well, um, with that, then I will um, close out the program for this evening. I want to thank you all again for your participation on this wonderful Wednesday. And thank you all for being here this evening. Thank you. Good evening.